Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles and from the Big Apple in New York City, <laughs> welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg at thecaregiverspace.org. And we're also coming to you live and on demand on 26 audio and video platforms, iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, just a whole bunch more. I don't want to waste time <laughs> telling you who they are. Trust me on that one. In fact, we're voted number one podcast of the top 50 on Player FM, number two caregiver podcast on Feedspot, and number two caregiver podcast on CaringVillage.com. And we have an exciting, and we have an especially exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, Philip Walter Smith. I always like guests with three names. That means they're more important. Uh, he actually died three times and came back to life. And he even learned how to be his own caregiver. Imagine that. And his wife actually died of cancer with him assisting her for 17 months. But before we get started on Philip, I want to take this moment to thank my last week's guests, Janet Borgensen and Jonathan Schroeder, Finding Fun in Connection with Vintage Vinyl Records. That was a fun show, wasn't it, Adrian? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Just a reminder, you can catch all that interview and all our interviews, and this one even, on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, or any of our other 26 global networks that I mentioned earlier. All right, enough of that. Philip, boy, I can't talk today. I had a wild weekend. <laughs> I had a wild weekend with Dog the Bounty Hunter, with the United States Army playing war games. And um, what was the third thing I was doing? I don't know. I'm just all in a fog here. But uh, welcome to the show, Philip. Um, excited to have Thank you on. You very, Thank you very much. And you mentioned all the places you're from, and I happen to be sitting in Ghana at this point. In Ghana? In Ghana. So that's why the phone number has, has 12 numbers. Yes, that's correct. I looked up the there, country code there, and it said Africa. And I says, no, he can't be in Africa. They're in Ghana. Well, that's I, close, I'm, in, I'm in a small town outside of the second largest city. Uh, there's only about 15,000 people in this area. Uh, we have a, a very nice operation going here. Uh, first, the, the first thing that I do here is that I'm deputy CEO of the largest poultry operation in the country, and, and we're building it. Uh, we will have a total of about 7,000 people working when wow. we have our plan finished. And that will be my last major job. Um, <laughs> and I expect that I'll be finished in a few years. But the, the one thing that we're doing right now is uh, promoting the book that we're doing the country of Ghana is actually building a national cathedral in the, the capital, in Accra. In Accra. For, for all dimensions, or for, for all denominations. And it's a cost of $300 million. 
I'm sorry, 300 million local currency. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to be donating 20% of the cost of the price of our book that we're selling in this country to the cost of the total cost of the construction and we expect that over a period of about 4 years we will have contributed approximately 75 million of that 300 million and it, we're going to have fun doing it and we're doing we're having fun already we're preparing we spent 12 hours today preparing the book launch. They, they do things a little bit differently here. I did a book signing 12 years ago. I, w I went into a bookstore. I signed a bunch of books, thanked everybody, took my money, and then went home. Here, it is a major issue. Uh, <laughs> we're we're going to have three ministers here. The president will be making a statement. The, the king of the local region will be making a statement. Yeah, the president is going to show be up fun. for my book signing. <laughs> so it's, it's, we will be recording it. Uh, we expect that BBC and CNN and Fox mm. will carry it. But oh. uh, so that's, that's all the planning that we're doing because it's fun and it's going to be totally joyful to be able to say to everybody, here it is, come by it. Uh, it's Christmas time, folks, and get it for everybody. <laughs> well, thanks for the idea. I think I'm going to do my next book launch in Ghana. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've had gas stations all my life, and believe it or not, I had an employee working for me about, oh, 30 years ago, and he was from Ghana. And uh, he had uh, an English accent. He was white. And, yes. And he, um, he loved the country. So what a small world, huh? <laughs> well, um, oh, it, it, it's an incredible place. It really is. Everybody's friendly. So tell me, uh, you, not too many people have died and come back to life. Tell me what it was like on the other side, Philip. <laughs> well, I was in Kyrgyzstan in 1997 oh. working. I, I had left the United States to work overseas in international finance. I was working at the central bank. And in June of 98, uh, my appendix burst on a Friday, and I didn't know it. I had no idea. I got sick, and I thought it was food poisoning because mm. I've had that a few, in a few places in different parts of the world. And uh, I, I did nothing about it, and, and the pain went away. I took five or six Excedrin and you know, didn't feel much of anything. And I drank a little bit more vodka, and it helped a little bit. But the, uh, the result was that on Sunday, I was packing to go to do a seminar, and all of a sudden, I couldn't move. I literally could not move. I had to crawl across the floor, pull the phone off the desk, call my um, office manager and say, I've got something seriously wrong. You best get a doctor right now. Uh, she said, okay, I'll be there in a few minutes. She got there in about seven minutes. Then the ambulance was there in about eight minutes. Mm -hmm. Every ambulance had a doctor. The doctor walks in, checks me out, says, well, your appendix burst. You uh, have no choice but to go to the hospital right now and have the operation and get all this mess cleaned up. I didn't realize anything about it. I had never been in a hospital like that ever. Uh, 
It was my first real trip to a hospital. The problem that I had was, number one, no one spoke English. Um, <laughs> and I didn't speak Russian or the local language of Kyrgyz. And the second problem I had was I had no idea where I was. I, they started giving me shots and things. I, the last thing I remember was looking up and seeing the operating lights in the operating room. I woke up about 28 hours later on Monday night. They told me on Tuesday morning that I had died twice and come back. I said, well, that's sort of good, isn't it? And she said, yeah, well, we didn't have to worry about getting the wooden box. And then on Thursday of that week, I actually was, I was reading a Tom Clancy novel, sitting in bed, and all of a sudden, I thought the top of my head had blown off. I couldn't reach it because of the bandages around my side. And my blood pressure went off scale. My temperature went up. It just got crazy. And I saw an angel standing at the end of, I presume it was an angel, put it this way, uh, at the end of a tunnel of fog with stepping stones leading up to her, bright light behind her. Uh, she basically said, Phil, everything is ready. We have prepared everything. If you're ready, we are ready for you to come up. My answer was, wait, I'm not ready. I took the Tom Clancy novel I was reading, threw it against the door, woke up the guy in the bed next to me. He went and got the nurses. They put me back to sleep with the narcotics or whatever. I have no idea what they gave me. But I slept. I woke up the next morning and realized what had happened. And I thought, hmm, maybe it's time for me to start making some changes with my own life. But during that period, that's when I found out, well, I, I, about three days later, after they stopped feeding me intravenously, I, th I said, well, what do, what do I do about breakfast or lunch or dinner? Uh, well, if you want something, you have somebody arrange to bring it in, and they feed you, and they take the dishes with them, and they take them back out. Uh -huh. Oh, really? <laughs> and the, one, the first thing that I needed, because of the the periodontal the, uh, fluid that was all through my body, I needed some various strong medicines that were only available four hours away in Kazakhstan. We got our driver. The, the doctor said where we could get them. We got our driver to drive up there, buy them, bring them back. And that's what they gave me for medicine because they didn't have any in the country uh, that, they, that they could find. And then... Uh, about the fifth day, I started drinking bouillon uh, through a straw. Uh, about the eighth day, and, th and this was being brought to me by my friend who was my Russian tutor um, for my lessons because I was trying to take lessons and try to understand the language. I then started eating a little bit of breadcrumbs in the broth after about a week, uh, and after about 10 days, then I could start eating more solid food. Uh, and after a couple of weeks, I was eating regular food. Um, I was exercising. I forced myself to exercise. I also was smoking. I had been, I, I stopped smoking 
last month after having smoked 54 years. But during that period, I was smoking. And I said, now, doctor, can I go up and down steps? And he said, actually, that's a good idea. I said, great. I'm going outside and have a cigarette. I went outside, sit, by the oak, sit under the oak tree, have a cigarette, uh, I, or, or two or three or four for an hour, and then I would come back in. Because there's nothing to do in that hospital except sit in the bed and listen to my radio and my music um, and then sing Caruso with the doctor who was there who loved Caruso. <laughs> and uh, it, it ended up being a very interesting experience. I finally was, you know, my, my friend kept bringing the food as I needed it. I lasted about a month there. And that's what I would call being your own caregiver. Uh, the toilets were less than desirable to use. Uh, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, uh, one of the things you have to learn how to do in, in countries like that is squat. Squat. And, <laughs> yes. And uh, I learned uh, because the last thing you want to do is be touching what you're squatting over. Anyway, um, we don't want it to go too far there. But I learned how to take care of myself. I, I, for about a month, I had to go in every day and have the drains checked because that drains in my side where the, the fluid was still coming out. Mm -hmm. And I was still pretty sick. Um, so I, I finally got out. Doctor said, told me what I couldn't, couldn't do. And he said, don't think about running. Don't think about doing any exercise. And I was doing kickboxing and things like that before. And I thought, well, okay, fine. And I, there was a uh, two blocks away from my apartment was a very nice stadium, perfect condition. So I decided I'd go down and run. Well, I lasted less than 10 feet and it hurt. Um, I actually re-injured it and had to, get, had to get it fixed a few years later. But along the way, that was my first experience with it. Um, I did, it my father had had nine heart attacks. Mm. He, he described seeing the tunnel and the steps and things in three or four of those. When I was with him, he always had nitro, and I would put it under his tongue, and within a few minutes, he would be back. Um, I didn't have any nitro. Uh, I've had heart attacks since then. Um, three probably, at least two, maybe three. And I'm trying to keep that number down because if my dad lasted nine, I want to be a cat also and have <laughs> nine lives. Um, and I, I, I went on to work in other countries. Uh, I, I went to Afghanistan. I went to Iraq. One of the trips we had in Iraq where we were going from the main base to our base uh, we got caught in a sniper attack. There were snipers on two sides of us shooting at our convoy. Uh, I was the only unarmed, <clears throat> unarmed person. They pushed me to the floor, and I had a helmet and flak jacket, but the helmet crashed into my face. And I didn't realize it, but it had pushed, it uh, detached my retina. And I didn't know. I'm done. I'm done there running around in 51 degree heat. Uh, 130 degree heat, 51 degrees centigrade, working in the shade with no air conditioning, and it was it was not much fun. 
And after a few months, I went home and I told the doctor about it and he checked it. And he said, well, you had a cataract growing. And I said, that's what I thought. So take it off and put a new lens on, which he did. Didn't work. And then he went back in and looked a little bit further and said, hmm, well, your retina is not detached. So we need to operate on that. Thank you very much. Five more operations later. Um, they, and I don't know if you've ever had a, if you've ever been in a Russian hospital, this was in Moscow at a very famous world famous clinic, but there is nothing as painful as putting a needle in, in all this stuff around your eye while they, because there's, you know, that, that's hard stuff. And, uh, and I, I got through it. Um, Thank God for some strong medicine. Um, they gave me some psychedelic stuff that I saw the best colors. And so interesting that, that your angel was a female and not a male. Well, my wife and I have been having a discussion. Is God a female or a male? Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. So maybe that and was it, in your mind. And what was this female angel wearing? She, she had a white robe. She had her arms out, extended out, and the white robe was dangling down from her wrists all the way down to her waist. Could you see any wings? No, except that maybe the the the, um, what we did the sleeves from the maybe the sleeves were. I don't know. All right. Uh, I never thought about the wings. So um, your so your near death experience made you realize you needed to take control of your life. How exactly yeah. did you take control of your life from that point on? The next day, I took total financial control of my life. I had a wife. I was in a marriage that wasn't working. She was giving me an allowance, and uh, I got an email from her the next day saying, "You re- you understand that if you're laying in the hospital." Uh, and not working, you don't get paid. You need to get out of that hospital and get back to work. Oh my God! <laughs> well, uh, that was the. That's when the light oh, went the up. Wake up call. Oh, major. My when, when that fax was delivered to me, I told my office manager, "We're going to change a few things." I so you worked, you got a check, but still, she gave you an allowance because she got the check. All went into her no, account. The, the money was, I was being paid by a contractor in Washington who sent the money to California, and then she would send me a thousand a month to spend um, in Kyrgyzstan. And because you're out in the I, field, I see. Yes. And I wow, turned that she around. She had total control, didn't she? She did. And that, so I stopped that. That was the Good first thing. The second thing I did was. I, I weighed 275 pounds, wow. which was, you know, pretty good size boy. Um, and I, I call the time that I was in the hospital, my hospital diet, my Kyrgyzstan hospital diet. Uh, I lost about 40 pounds. Is that because uh, of hospital food? Is that because of hospital food? Well, the, the lack of the food. Um, and the, I then continued doing everything I could to eat right, to be better. And today I weigh what I weighed when I graduated from high school in 1963. 
Uh, I'm one or two pounds. 95 pounds. 95 pounds. And, um, and your stress has gone way down. Oh, my stress level is almost zero. Uh, I'm, and I do, if anything happens during the week that anybody aggravates me, I, I forgive them and get on with my life and say, I don't need you in my life because all you do is aggravate me. I just go to the next person. And so in your, in your book, you talk about how you can reduce uh, 99% of uh, caregivers' stress, right? Exactly. And, and I, the next day, after I burned the list and flushed it, I felt much better. I, I was amazing how good I felt. I guess so. <laughs> and the, the day after that, I got a check from one of those people for $10,000. Wow. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and I did thank him. I sent him a note. Thank you. But don't worry about the rest because you and I are not going to have anything to do with each other for the rest of our lives. That was it. Now, you, and, fought, you fought in Iraq. You were in the uh, army or what? I, I was working for the – I was seconded to um, the Independent British contractor? Army, uh, as, as a contractor for the British Army wow. uh, for DFID, which is the equivalent of USAID. And I went through all the training. Uh, you were talking about your weekend trip. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went through the gas, the nuclear biological uh, warf- warfare training wow. um, and passed it and then went to Iraq. Um, and that's when all that happened uh, with, with my eye. So how did you uh, lose your eye? What exactly happened? We, we, we were coming back to our base, snipers on both sides on the second floor, uh, second stories shooting. Uh, there were four Jeeps. Um, I was the only unarmed person. And I was the reason that those four Jeeps were there because of my job. I was handing all the cash for Southern Iraq. And wow. the guy next to me pushed me to the floor and sat on me because to protect me. And they're shooting back. And we drive up over the curb and down the other side and down the other side of the street. Uh, one of the, one of the guys didn't make it. Uh, he was sent home in a box uh, a week later. And um, I didn't realize what it was until six months later when I was back home, I realized that I'd lost my eye because it was re- detached and could not mm. be reattached. Uh, the deja vu. I mean, I just came back from the army this weekend and I was at Fort Irwin uh biggest training base they built a village you know to mimic the villages in in the middle east and we just were part of a drill of of snipers shooting from a building and how you know they call on the radio and the jeeps come in the uh the black hawk comes in the tank comes in and uh they they neutralize the situation and you actually lived it i just uh you know that george Patton built that Built Fort Irwin. Really? Oh, yeah. And it, for a Second World War and for exactly for North Africa. And wow. it's perfect. I've been there. It is. It's amazing. I, I, oh, it I feel is. so much safer. And these are great guys, you know, just middle America, young 22-year-olds who are just oh, super man. smart. And uh, I have a new appreciation for our military, let me tell you. And, and you're probably a little bit sore. 
<laughs> well, my feet were killing me. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, and the yeah. gun, the, the M41A gun or A1 gun was very heavy. I got to shite. I got to shoot the sniper rifles. I got to shoot the sniper machine guns. They were awesome. I mean, I, I crossed that one off my bucket list. Wow. Yep. I, I've been there and done all that. We, I had to go through when I was in Afghanistan. Uh, the United States government required every U.S. AID contractor to go through uh, training because people were being yeah, uh, very smart. Hostages were taken and things. So I had to go through all that. And we, you know, we crawled on our bellies under barbed wire with live bullets going across the top of us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you got to crawl on your belly to shoot that uh, sniper rifle. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah. tell us about your latest book. You are the most important, the road to everything you want in life. Why did you write it and what do you hope to accomplish by it? I, I wrote it uh, during the quarantine last year. It, I, I took all of my experiences and put them together. I'm 76, so I had 75 years of experience. I put it together because I wanted to share what I've learned about what I can do to help other people, what I've done in the past to help other people, uh, what, what positive things that I've done. Love yourself first, believe yourself first, and then other people are going to like you and believe you and trust you and get along with you um, and do things for other people. Uh, every time I did something for someone else, eventually someone, that person would come back and do something nice for me. I realized that early on. So, and I just, I stress that, that if you go out and help other people, you're, you're planting seeds and you're growing, you're over a period of time, you're going to reap those. It's going to come back to you. You're going to be better off than what you were. And I am, uh, by living the way I've lived, uh, I am totally financially independent. I don't have to work another day in my life, but I this will not is. stop. Um, and we have fun. Now we're doing the book. We fully expect, we were talking to the printer today. We want a million copies of the book. For And, you, and you're donating uh, proceeds. 20%, 20% of the proceeds of the, wow. of the total price of the, of the yeah. total price goes to charity. That's very uh, generous. Yep. And in, in uh, Amazon, when they print it and send me a check at the end of the month or whenever they send them, uh, 20% of that will immediately go to charity in the United States. Uh, the same thing goes in Kyrgyzstan with the Russian version. 20% goes to charity there. Good for you. And, now, and I, understand, I understand you married the, the nurse who was taking care of you during one of the times you died. Is that true? That's true. She was one of the uh, nurses that assisted during the operation. She was, she was there for 10 hours going through wow. all this stuff dealing with me. So and what, what did she see in you that, uh, that made her want to marry you or go out with you? Well, I, I, I'm not going to brag, but I told, yeah. I told her, I said, no, you got to be careful with me because if you spend one night with me, you'll never want another man. But <laughs> that was, that's a joke. And I didn't know that we're writing another book together. Now, wow. I didn't know that she liked me, actually, when I was in the hospital. I was thought, too drugged. You I thought she understand. treats all the patients like that, huh? Well, she's just a lovely person. 
And then when I went back four years later to work, or six years later, to thank the doctor, she's the lady who opened up the door because it was not visiting hours. I was beating on the door to get in to see the doctor just to thank him again. And she opened it. And that started the smile and the hug and the kiss started it again. And within two or three months, we were having, uh, we were very good friends. Wow. And our roads went apart, came back, went apart, came back in Kosovo, in Turkey, in other countries. Wow. And after my Russian wife died, uh, oh. there was only, she was. Were you married was, when you lost your eye? Uh, yes, I was. Okay. Uh, I was, I was in, I, I, my home was in Moscow, but I was living in Iraq. Okay. And so obviously there was no romance because you were a married man. But then well, after I was, I had to be careful. Yeah. But my second wife who did die from cancer, uh-huh. uh, that, that was not necessarily the worst part about her life. As far as our relationship, we did, we did not have a very good marriage and, uh, you know, it, it was what it was. I, I tried to make it work, uh, but it didn't work. And when when everything happened the way it happened, I made a list. Who would I marry? What would I do next? And there was one person on the list, and it was her. There was, there was nobody else on the list. And I called her and asked her if I could come and see her. She said yes. I went to see her in a couple of days. I spent three days with her. Third day, I asked her to marry me, and I said, I'll call you tonight when I get back to Moscow. She said, yes, we got married, and it was, and it's been absolutely fantastic. I guess so. Totally incredible. Um, All right. How can we get a, how can we get a hold of you? And if we want to read your book. Okay. I, all of my social media, my website, everything is Philip W. Philip Walter Smith dot com for the website uh linkedin facebook youtube all of them are philip walter smith i have a facebook group called philip walter smith we're going to be making major announcements in the next week or so about the launch here um all right what are people going to learn from your book how to take what to do to take care of themselves first to help other people and by helping the other people you're going to get everything that you want in your life. It's just that simple. And that's what I've been doing the last 15 years. I, I, I give away 20% of everything that I earn, and I, continue, I will continue to do that until the day I die. Um, and this year, that's, that's half a million dollars. Well, so, thank you so much for your generosity, and good luck to the uh, Nana Project. We appreciate you coming on the show, Philip. Okay, I, I appreciate you having me and being able to share with you. Sure, and for those who are listening, we thank you for tuning in each and every week. And again, a reminder, all our shows are become recorded podcasts and video casts on our platforms mentioned before on YouTube, Blog Talk, Radio, Podbean, many others. And if there's a like button at the bottom of the platform you're looking at, please click it because it helps with the Anna, what do they call those? The uh, uh, Anna algorithms. Algorithms. Thank you. Sometimes I lose my words, and that helps more people uh, hear our shows and hear 
uh, ways in order to help themselves. And all my listeners, thank you again for tuning in. And until next week, bye-bye. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing.